New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. For untold millennia, human beings have come together and listened to stories. Indeed, this is the way we learn. At the same time, something else occurs. A depth of awareness and insight. A transcendent knowing. This collective wisdom is elusive and unpredictable. It can't be willed into being. How each of us can tap into the extraordinary co-creative potential that exists in every group serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Alan Briskin. Alan Briskin is a pioneer in the field of organizational learning and co-founder of the Collective Wisdom Initiative. He's the author of the award-winning book, The Stirring of Soul in the Workplace, and co-author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and The Trap of Collective Folly. His co-authors include Cheryl Erickson, an educator and convener of innovative transformational gatherings, John Ott, who facilitates community and organizational change efforts, integrating principles of collective wisdom into contexts that demand action now, and Tom Callanan, writer, group process facilitator, consultant, and co-founder of the Collective Wisdom Initiative. Join us for the next hour as we explore what enables us to collectively make wise choices with our guest, Alan Briskin. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Alan, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. So, Alan, let's let's begin by by saying, you know, how did how did you be initially become involved in this project? Well, I think there was a few different uh inspirations for the book. And uh, one of them was uh uh a meeting in circle that uh, involved Cheryl and Tom. We had it at John Ott's house, actually, in New Mexico. He had just returned. Tom had just returned from Dharmasala, India, where he had uh, been in group with Dalai Lama. And I believe you were there yes. as well. And uh, he was excited about talking about what happens in groups that are transformational. What kind of extraordinary things can can occur. Uh, and I also think he was uh, had lots of questions that even in groups that uh, have really smart people, there still can be competition and status seeking and ways people are uh, not really listening to each other, but through each other. Yes. And uh, he was at the time program officer at the Fetzer Institute, which was a philanthropic organization in Michigan uh, that was and still is a master convener of groups from all over the world. So he was motivated to understand what constitutes uh, the infrastructure, if you will, of groups that can uh, have transcendent ways of knowing. And he was colleagues with Cheryl Erickson, 
uh, who had been working with Peter Senge and others on learning organization. And uh, I knew them, and they approached me as uh, as becoming part of the collective that would work on this, as was John Ott. This was over 10 years ago now. And so we set out by talking to as many people as we could. We, we uh, interviewed dozens and then hundreds of people uh, to try to see if we could see a pattern in how groups uh, came together and did more than just talking through each other. And there was a letter that Jacob Needleman uh, sent to Rob Lehman. Yes. Um, and uh, where he, he said, I believe the group is the art form of the future. Yeah, that, that, was an, uh, that was for me certainly an inspiration for thinking about the research we would do. Uh, Rob Lehman at that time was president of Fetzer Institute. Uh, Jacob Needleman, who actually lives a couple blocks from me, uh, was uh, was very involved with Fetzer during that time, and he was a fellow. At he was time. a fellow, and and he was really writing in support of what Fetzer might conceive as uh, worth doing. And so he wrote about how each culture has some kind of art form. The pyramids, the you know, different ways cultures define themselves, and he talked about the group as an art form, as as potentially the the perspective of this time. And at the time, I believe he was doing research on the United States Constitution. Yes, and he saw that as an originating gesture in this direction, that that the Constitution was an external form that was conceived to protect the individual conscience and that this had never really been done at this scale before. And uh, so that, that really got to be a central idea behind our work that we were looking at an art form, which, which meant that one could look for nuances and subtleties and be able to hold, uh, uh, contrasting ideas and sometimes even conflicting ideas in order to derive uh, a more powerful form. I think many, probably some listeners are not aware of the fact that the Constitution really wasn't really uh, ratified until I think 1787. That's right. Um, and uh, it took like four years, I think, of, of back and forth debate. But- well, Needleman writes about this, uh, and it's actually one of the stories we tell in the book. Yes. It, it, uh, particularly to uh, highlight one of the stances that we think uh, aids collective wisdom to arise, and that is suspension of certainty. Uh, Franklin, at the beginning of that period in Philadelphia, 1787, like you say, <clears throat> after three or four weeks of people just bitterly arguing and getting nowhere, he stands up and he says, you know, I think we're looking for this new form in all the wrong places, back and backwards in history and sideways to Europe. And we're going to need to allow something to be born that is uh, new. And he actually suggests that they consider, uh, he uses the Quaker term for a higher spirit uh, to be allied with, with uh, the, their friend and suggests to the group that they begin each morning in contemplation and prayer. Well, this is the Congress, right? The, the, this is the group that's going to be creating. They, they, for the first time, really come to agreement, and that is that they disagree with Franklin. They're not going to start each morning with contemplation. But they do continue their work for months uh, further. And at the end, they have a document that will become the document that we know as the U.S. Constitution. But they still have to go out to their 
respective states and sell it. And Franklin now, who's been in the stuffy room for months, is in his 80s. He's suffering from gout. He He's not strong enough to deliver a final talk to the group. What's this? I think in, it's August in Philadelphia. It's August it's like, in Philadelphia, yeah. yeah. And, and I believe either. they kept the windows shuttered so no one could listen right. in. And he actually has a colleague from Pennsylvania, his delegation, deliver the talk. And it's one of the most brilliant pieces of oratory. Uh, he's trying to rally those who are still on the fence to sign the document. And he himself has difficulties with some of the things that are in this draft document. But he gets up and using his incredible wit, he uh, he makes an analogy. He said the the only difference between the Romish church and the Anglican church of England is one thinks it's infallible, the other thinks it's never in the wrong. <laughs> and both are similar to a French woman I know who thinks she's always in the right. <laughs> and he says, this document we have for all its flaws, and maybe maybe they're not even flaws, uh, who knows, uh, is a commitment that we can not always be right, that each of us needs to listen to the other and allow something to, to emerge that is what no one may have started with. And that's, I think, the legacy of the U.S. Constitution. It was a document born from uh, bitterness and partisanship. They couldn't even agree if they were revising the Articles of Confederation or if they were creating a new document. Uh, but they were able to listen to each other enough and be willing to discover together something that they could go forward with. Yeah, yeah it's quite remarkable. For nothing like that had ever happened before. <laughs> well, it, the most basic collective wisdom is knowledge and insights that come through group and community interaction. But at a deeper level, it's about our interconnectedness to each other. Uh, I would say along with Needleman's uh, uh, call for looking at groups as an art form. Alan, what is the Collective Wisdom Initiative? Collective Wisdom Initiative is a network of practitioners and scholars that we began to bring together in uh, uh, 2000, I believe it was. And the behind that was an initial grant, as I talked about the Fetzer Institute, and we met and began the work that led to a small spiral-bound piece of research called uh, Centered on the Edge, Mapping a Field of Collective Intelligence and Spiritual Wisdom. And uh, our group met in Petaluma at the very opening of when the Institute of Noetic Sciences moved, I believe, from Sausalito. And we were, uh, I believe, the first group to actually meet there. They were still sort of pulling together the, the, the grounds and we had a chance to meet Edgar Mitchell, who was the founder of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And we met him by accident. Uh, I didn't know who he was. Tom had to explain. He said, do you know who this is? You know, this is Edgar Mitchell. And Cheryl, as she will do, uh, asked the innocent question, hearing that he had been the head of the lunar module uh, on Apollo 14. Yes. If there was any relationship to his going to the moon in the beginning of the, of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And uh, he begins to tell us a story, a story that I've since learned he's told many times, but he tells it with such feeling. And he describes returning from the moon, and he's in the capsule, and he sees the earth and the sun and the heavens. And he describes having this moment of insight, which he calls an epiphany. Yes. 
where he experiences the interconnectedness of realizing that it's not us and them, me and you, that we're all prototyped from stardust. Yes. And as he's telling us this, there's tears welling up in his eyes. And he says that there's, uh, he's not found any English word that could really capture the experience. The closest is a Sanskrit word, samadhi, which uh, suggests the interconnectedness of life. And I, I, this was long before we even knew we would seek to publish a book. John Ott was there as Tom Callanan and Cheryl and I, as well as others. And I felt it was really the, the inspiration for how we kept in the book uh, focused on the deep interconnection that we have, that this was not just a lofty idea or aspiration. It's an experience that we each can have and we can each glimpse it in groups. At a deeper level, it is about this interconnection. It's about glimpsing these larger fields that we're part of. And so in its most uh, practical form, it aids collaboration. And there's no group or organization that doesn't seek to find ways to collaborate, to uh, literally lift the load together. Um, but, but this other element, the spiritual element, is probably captured by Thich Nhat Hanh when he talks about a loving Buddha that will come this century. But he says it will come not as an individual, but as a sangha, as a group, as a spiritual community. And that's the promise of the circle, that it can be a organ of perception. It can be a way of perceiving this larger field that we're connected to. I'm speaking with Alan Briskin. He's the co-author of a book entitled The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. It's also co-authored by Cheryl Erickson, John Ott, and Tom Callanan. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Speaking with Alan Briskin, and he's the co-author of a book entitled The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. Alan, uh, was interesting, uh, there's a piece, Peter Block was quoted, uh, the answer to how is yes. I think it's a great, you know, great statement, the answer to how is yes. And it kind of leads me to back to the idea of what is wisdom. Wisdom, as it's defined in the dictionary, is the accumulation of knowledge, uh, scientific and philosophical knowledge. But wisdom, I think, is, is uh, uh, perceived throughout time and cultures as a reverence for life, as a deep appreciation for the living connectedness of life. And that became uh, the operating 
uh, definition for us of, of wisdom, that it was, a, was both sound judgment and revelation. It was an appreciation for what is known, but a constant inquiry into mystery, into the unknown. And so wisdom, when it is joined with the collective, begins to create a new kind of creative tension. Collective is, is somewhat of a neutral term, just meaning what can we find similar among us. So the human species is a collective, uh, a group together doing something as a collective. But whether it moves toward wisdom or folly is the critical question of our times. And so we didn't want to just say, you get together in a group, you can have wisdom. We wanted to say, there are practices, there are stances, commitments, and convictions that allow us to uh, create the conditions for wisdom to arise. It's not completely under our control. Earlier, you talked about four areas that is yeah. associated with, with, with our work. And the first was that we see each other. And this has both real and metaphoric uh, powers. Uh, in groups, we often become so uh, attentive to just what's in our own thoughts and minds. We literally stop seeing each other. Yes. Uh, but the metaphor is also uh, found in, in South African greetings, uh, which, which is, I see you. And the reply is, you know, I see you. In Avatar, a movie that has become the best-selling film as of as of today, uh, the characters of of the indigenous group use that same greeting: "I see you." It's a way of saying, "You matter. I acknowledge you." And in return, the person says, "I see you. I acknowledge you back." So it begins there. It begins with the basic respect that we regard each other, we regard the dignity each of us has. And then the notion of connection. Uh, so much of the time, our, our interactions in groups is transactional. You know, you give me something, I give you something. Yes. You're only as good as what you did for me today. Right. Uh, collective wisdom really talks about the resiliency of relationships and the discipline of building relationships, that we get connected to each other. And when we get connected to each other, we begin to create the field that allows wisdom to arise. Similarly in organizations, organizations become fragmented silos. And as people within organizations begin to see how they affect each other, they begin capable of, of, of sounder judgment. The third area is that when we are together, there's a way to gain access to what we know, to the perspectives we hold, to the accumulated knowledge that we have. And that's a critical element of sound judgment, that we get the best information. And we're capable of discerning the distinguishing intelligence of the group. The fourth area, which I think opens the door then to what Edgar Mitchell was talking about, is that when you create this kind of respect and discernment in groups, you open to the possibility of seeing yourself as part of a larger field, as a larger cosmos. And so many of the people you've interviewed, many of the people that have uh, published in the last decade about zero-point fields, about the Akashic field, they are pointing to that larger field from, that holds us all. And our work is about the experience 
at a more intimate level of group to be able to open the portal and be able to experience that. And like a sangha, a spiritual community, you need to carry a certain regard for each other to open that door into that other dimension. There were two stories that were just really quite uh, illuminating and powerful um, in respect to collective wisdom. And that one was the Marion Galt story, the, Mount, the Montana fire yeah. with uh, uh, Wagner Dodge and, and where 12 smoke jumpers, a forest ranger lost their lives. I think everybody remembers that fire as a major thing. And then, uh, then there was another one, uh, the Ma- Mallory Holtman and the softball story. Yeah. So could you tell us the Marion Galt story? It's a great story. The Mangold story, yeah. Uh, Mangold, yeah. Yes, is a uh, an event that occurred uh, in Montana, as you mentioned, and a group of smoke jumpers uh, went in to what they thought was a fairly typical uh, f- fire that they'd have to battle, and everything went wrong. Uh, the winds changed. the The routes that they thought they could get to safety were cut off, and they all perished but three people. What was striking about the story is that the head of that team spontaneously found a way to save himself and what he thought would be the rest of his group. He lit a fire in front of him, not a backfire, but a fire in front of him, burned off some ground and then hid inside that circle of charred ground while the larger fire went over him. But when he called the men into that circle with him, the first people who saw him ignored him and just continued running. And then everyone else who followed uh, followed the men who didn't go into the circle. Two people survived outside of Wagner Dodge himself uh, by just fortunately, you know, stumbling into a barren area that they were saved from the fire. But in reviewing what happened during that time, it was clear that Wagner Dodge had no relationship to any of the men, that a command and control style of leadership had been taught. The men had no relationship to each other, uh, and there had never been the team spirit that might have allowed them to follow him into that saving area of charred ground. And so we begin the book there as a way of saying we face similarly at this time with global warming and terrorism and economic uh, collapse always to our left or right, that we need to develop the disciplines that would allow us to be able to both invent and having invented something, trust that it will uh, save us. Yes. And then the other story about Mallory Holtman and the yes. softball story in Oregon well, that was uh, that was the contrasting story yes. to the man gulch. It was what is what does it look on the other side, and the backstory for that is you know when we first uh, were writing our introduction, uh, it was hard to find a way to describe the collective wisdom without it sounding quite lofty, and I was during one of those periods where I was stuck. And my wife actually came to me and and said, uh, "I have a story you should look at." And, she said she had cried when she read it, and then I read it, and I had cried, and everybody in the story is crying. And I thought, ah, this is a way that's not as lofty. You could see it and feel it. And the story took place at a uh, women's baseball team, a Division Three team in Oregon. And the 
uh, one player on the team hit a home run. And when she's rounding first base, she's never hit a home she's run. She's never hit a home run in her four years. Yes. She hits a home run. And as she's rounding first base, she collapses, her knee gives way, and she's in terrible pain. And her own coach is saying, I can't touch you or you'll be out. And she has to crawl back to first base. She crawls back to first base, and the coaches come out to confer. And the umps say that she has to be able to round the bases for herself. She can't be helped by her own teammates. Otherwise, it's a single. And at that point, Marilee Holtman, who's the star player on the other team, the first baseman, steps forward and says to the umpires, if uh, her own teammates can't help her, is there any rule that says that, that she and her teammates couldn't? And they don't have anything in the rule book that says that the other team can't help. Uh-huh. And so the shortstop and Mallory pick up uh, Sarah and walk her around the bases. And, and Sarah's wondering, what are people thinking? You know, this is kind of crazy. Yeah. This looks, and when she gets to home plate, her whole team is crying. The coach is crying. People in the stands are crying. And Marilyn, Marilyn Holtman says later, that this is what you'll remember. You know, we won't remember whether we won or lost. We'll remember the character of the team. And that although I had the idea, anyone on my team would have done the same thing. And that was what I emphasized in the story. That here was an individual who stepped forward, but stepped forward with confidence that her team, her group, would support her in helping the other side. And the theme of that is for all of the ways we describe the Akashic field and the different kinds of group fields, there is a baseline of human decency that we recognize throughout time and throughout culture. And it's all the more poignant when it attends to the pain and suffering of someone from another group. Uh, And I think this is the challenge as we move forward, that we've always had the golden rule in all cultures, but it has been primarily for one's own group. And these, these, these ideas have come out of tribal times. And so it made sense that they were describing how the social bonds and ethic among each other. Collective wisdom suggests that we're at a turning point, a turning point that you've been tracking for 30 years, uh, that the ethic that we need to hold includes the whole human species, and our relationship to the earth. This is especially true, I think, among indigenous folks, indigenous peoples around the world. They really have a connection to the natural world, and they, they, they operate in a way that, that this collective wisdom really works. It's, 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 it's there. Well, I think, again, from the perspective of the work and research we did, we continually found many of the practices within indigenous cultures. Paula Underwood from the Turtle Clan of the Iroquois just beautifully lays out uh, a concept of deep listening in which she says it's not, uh, you know, simply the capacity to memorize what people say, but to hear their hearts. And when you can do that, you can hear the universe talking. And so that aspect is deeply embedded in the collective wisdom work, that this, these are an acknowledgement and an honoring of practices that have been with us. It's also, I think, though, 
the recognition of emergence. You know, when you and I are speaking to each other, we have some idea of what we're going to say. But as we speak, words come out of our mouth that we could not have completely controlled. And that's the emergent element. And that to create a setting where wisdom can arise is to both be practicing the disciplines, but also leaving that space for something new to emerge. You're listening to Alan Briskin. He's the author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, and that's thepowerofcollectivewisdom.com or the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. speaking with Alan Briskin, and he's the co-author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. Alan, we're talking about Paula Underwood, and 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 she she had actually referred to the Iroquois in the seventh generation ahead. Uh, and one of the things they do, thinking ahead, and uh, the one mind, what the one mind was, that they would basically come together and sit and... And they'd go away, and everybody knew what they had to do, what they wanted, to do, what they needed to do. Plus, it was also a matriarchal, uh, matrilinear society, which is an interesting point. Um, and it occurs to me that uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Jefferson, of course, and also Franklin were influenced by the Iroquois and that whole idea, what the Iroquois were doing. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to note that we are the, the those who were, uh, say, uh, baby boomers, the kind of we're the seventh generation following the death of Thomas Jenner, uh, Jefferson. This is kind of an interesting footnote uh, that because uh, he was someone who uh, appreciated the Iroquois, and he was someone who, who really also. What's amazing is that all of those uh, those men and the women behind them, they were all uh, aware that they were what they were doing was for the future which is quite amazing, you know? I think that was what was striking about both Paula Underwood's comment about the Iroquois and the Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, Washington, that they were very conscious that they were giving birth to something new and that it would uh, echo through the generations. What Paula talked with Cheryl Erickson, it's one of the one of our one of an example of our remarkable interviews. And part of what she said to us is that it wasn't so much that nine thousand people would come together and make a decision together. That consensus was a function of of the social bonds that people had with each other. She was a clan mother, and it was partly her responsibility to listen to the people and listen, as she said, when even when people are not speaking. So it was a different construct than than uh, in the Western mind. Uh, how do you get people to agree? Not everybody would agree. Of course, people can't agree. You can't get 9,000, let alone 300 million people to agree. Uh, but you can support the social bonds that hold us together, the ethic that 
that there's a fabric that ties us together. And that's what the Iroquois, I think, their model of consensus represented, that they respected the social bonds among them. They knew they had to cultivate it. And so when decisions were made, they did so knowing what was in people's hearts. I love the connection you're making with that we're the seventh generation from that time. You know, Franklin actually warns in that speech he gives uh, back in 1787 that there may very well be a time when democracy fails. And he says, not because there will be bad, corrupt leaders. He says, because the collective will no longer be able to sustain good leaders to arise. I think Franklin clearly understood the the principles that that we're describing in, in, in collective wisdom, that we give birth to what we deserve, if you will. And uh, that our ability to see ahead in time is not the act of the economist telling you what the market's going to be in six months. Yes. It's the ability to see the consequences of our actions now and to ask hard questions about that and to actually place ourselves forward in time so that our children and grandchildren have a place that is inhabitable. It it was in one of your interviews with David White where he talks about our ability to be the ancestors of our future happiness. Yes. And that, uh, I love that way of giving expression to, I think, the seventh generation forward. Yes. What is it we do now that will make us the ancestors of our future happiness? Yes. Yeah, true. Um, also, there was a there was a, an interesting one of the uh, in preparing for collective wisdom to arise. There was a quote from Barack Obama, pre inaugural address uh, that he had given. Uh, Never forget that the true character of our nation is revealed not during times of comfort and ease, but by the right we do when the moment is ha- is hard. I ask you to help me reveal that character once more, and together we can carry forward as one nation and one people the legacy of our forefathers that we celebrate today. So there it is again. I think Obama is one of the uh, most articulate spokespersons for the notion of collective wisdom. And I think as we watch his presidency unfold, I think we need to be alert to some things. I think many of the people who supported Obama uh, did so with a certain warrior spirit, which was needed in its time. But it, it assumed that he could somehow on his own uh, create agreement, uh, move forward on progressive ideas. And there was, I think, relatively uh, immediate uh, skepticism and withdrawal of some of that hope uh, as as Obama began to engage what was going to be a very difficult time. And I think we're in that period now. Can the collective have the patience and the clarity for us to move forward as an expression of the whole. And this is very hard, I think, for particularly for progressives who still operate to some degree with an us and them. Uh, and we live in a country where I think a large percentage feel that uh, things are out of control, uh, whether we call them conspiracy theories or not, there there's a seduction to believing that someone is controlling things behind the scene, and a great fear of any kind of central government that would uh, dictate things. Exactly the the arguments that that Franklin was addressing in 1787. Yes, 
Uh, so the the collective wisdom suggests something else. It doesn't just suggest a progressive agenda. It suggests that we become mindful of our own behavior in groups and that groups are the unit by which we can create change. And so notions of suspending our own certainty, notions of respect for others, for being patient with the dissonance we may feel with those we disagree with, becomes disciplines and practices of collective wisdom. I think it was so obvious in the uh, January 2010 um, State of the Union address by President Obama, where uh, because it was in the uh, House House chamber and you had this proscenium and you had you had the Republicans and you had the Democrats and and there were a number of times when you know the, there would be clapping and and it was clear you could look and see that here were the Republicans and they're all sitting there stern faced and you know very uh, you know totally uh, f- frustrated and and uh, in some cases angry uh, and it was just such a contrast between that and here there was this other group the Democrats not that one was right the other but just the the, the idea that here was uh, uh, very, again, not being able to agree and being different, so, but not, not appreciating the situation. Well, I think you're painting a visual of uh, the conditions that we call collective folly. Yeah. And it isn't about who's right. It's, it's a shadow, if you will, of the tribalism, that there is a group and my group doesn't agree with your group. And whatever you say, you must be saying it for the wrong reasons. My job is to to uh, say something else or to show you why you're wrong. And in return, the other tribe says, well, you know, we'll just take, if you're not going to help, we'll just do it without you and, and so on. Collective folly is in our book because we thought it, that there's no conversation about collective wisdom unless each of us can be responsible for our behavior and sense what is happening in, in the group. And so folly wasn't simply uh, foolish judgments that are made. It was something that arose out of two uh, separate movements. One, a movement toward polarization, your visual of if I say something, you one group claps, the other group doesn't, and, so, and back and forth. And that polarization creates the conditions that no one is really listening to each other. No one is exploring relationships that might help bridge the gap and the chasms that sometimes we feel between each other. But the other side of collective folly is that we're in false agreement with each other. As if uh, any two or more people would agree all the time on anything. And so it's that ability to sense and navigate uh, when a group is exploring differences in a way that is allowing everyone to develop a better picture of the whole, as opposed to locking down into their tribal groups. There, there are certain stances that that were written about, and like um, deep listening, suspension of certainty, seeing whole systems while seeking diverse perspectives, respect for others, uh, group discernment, welcoming all that is arising, and trust in the transcendent. Can we talk about each of those? Yeah, I, and I think that again, this was uh, the part of the book where we wanted to establish for the reader. That you can't dictate, you can't have a three-phase program to have collective wisdom. You can't will it into being. The spirit always comes from the side. And for a group to be uh, open to spirit, one has to maintain a certain 
rigor and discipline in how one works with others. And so these six stances was drawn from the stories of Franklin and Paula Underwood and others, uh, in part because we didn't want to just talk about lofty principles. We wanted to talk about commitments and convictions of real people in actual situations. So with deep listening, it's an inversion of what most people assume about groups, which is it's about what you say. Yeah, right. And what we learned is that the, the, the intelligence that comes forward from a group has to do with the quality of listening. Uh, you know, you have been interviewing thousands of people over these decades. What is it that sustains you? You have a remarkable capacity to listen. And in groups and with leadership, that turns out to be one of the keys. Uh, listening is not all the same. I had one uh, doctor who who didn't score very well on patient satisfaction. And so he said, well, I'm going to now pretend to listen. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, that's a start. <laughs> but listening involves more than looking like you're taking notes. Yes. It's the ability to hear uh, the affective aspirations as well as the cognitive content of what is being said. Right. In, in that sense, when we do listen, we will be confronted with differences. And that is where the discipline of suspension of certainty comes in. That when we are willing to suspend not our knowledge, but our certainty, it creates permission for new ideas to emerge. So where there is need for transformation, where there's need for a new spirit, one has to be very practiced in that in that sense of 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 uh, suspending one's existing answers, letting go of the old patterns that we have. Right. The seeing whole systems is a invitation to say that our our again it's an inversion. A lot of people are just happy as a clam if they could just get agreement. All we want is alignment between our mission, our goals, or so on, our actionable items. Singhal system says there's always more to be revealed and that we seek diversity, that there should be an alarm that goes off in our minds if there is constant agreement. And this is the yes men, of course. Uh, it's the sure sign that people are not really seeking to understand the larger system that they're in. I'm speaking with Alan Briskin. He's the author, co-author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and The Trap of Collective Folly. We're going to continue our exploration of collective wisdom and all the rest in uh, just a moment. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, thepowerofcollectivewisdom.com or the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm speaking with Alan Briskin. The book is entitled Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. And uh, Alan, we were talking about the the six stances and and how that these come from the sources uh, of of the sources of interior sources. Interior sources. Us. And this is not so it's not just about external behavior, but it's really about the the true intent of what we're doing. That's right. Yeah. And and the fourth one is a really I think that the fulcrum of 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 where the group is going to go because it is about that interior intent and its respect for others in group discernment. As I've been mentioning that it's very hard not to imagine being in a group and finding oneself at odds with someone. Uh a person, a personality, the content of what they say. And so respect for others is not just a lofty external aspiration. It's an interior commitment. It is my responsibility to find a way to act respectfully, even to those that I differ with. That capacity, as it becomes stronger in a group, opens the door to discernment, which is a particular kind of distinguishing intelligence. It's the ability to to manage greater complexity, to account for shades of feelings, nuances of ideas. And it begins to deepen that social field we talked about earlier. And when the field is rich enough in meaning and respect, it is then that we begin to become more conscious of synchronicities, of uh, the fifth stance welcoming all that arises, even sometimes the difficulties and the obstacles, because we begin to be in alignment with the higher purpose. And so no one who takes on a difficult task can expect it to go smoothly. No one who works in, intimately with others can expect it always to be easy. But as we deepen that field of respect and open that portal to discernment, we begin to see that things come together in strange, coincidental ways that have meaning, the synchronicities uh, that have so often been talked about on your show. And it's then that we begin to to understand what it means to trust in the transcendent. It's a faith that that given the richness of the field, something is emerging that is beyond our control, uh, beyond our human will. And we are now truly in concert with that larger field. I'm recalling as you're speaking, the, the thought leader gathering at Fetzer over the five-year period, and one of the people participating was Harlan Cleveland, who's an amazing individual. He's now passed on. But I recall those circles that uh, people would talk, different people would say things. And I was very quiet, very reserved. And every so often, he would speak. And what would come out of his mouth was wisdom. And and he because he'd had a, a stroke earlier, he, he spoke in halting uh, tones. And there were spaces, but everybody listened when he spoke. Because he kind of like, he kind of took the whole, everything that was happening and he just put it in a context that, oh, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. Because he was so aware and alert to what was happening around him. Yes. It was an amazing display. It's, it's, it's a great memory, both for its uh, visual and its affective meaning, that it's often individuals who catalyze our consciousness of what's arising among us. But at the same time, 
the group did its work by coming together, by struggling with each other, by yes. by engaging each other, by coming together for something that they believed was worthwhile. And it's from that field, that social field that's created, that we can sometimes hear an individual voice speak out and give expression to something that's happening in the whole. Yes, true enough. So then we have uh, welcoming all that is rising. Well, this is the experience of really allowing the unexpected to enter the group, uh, to to be able to provide meaning for things that may may simply be coincidence. But there is an experience many of us have that at some threshold, it can't any longer be simply coincidence. And and Jung. Uh, explored this with a physicist, Wolfgang Pauli, and this was uh, years after he and Einstein got together for meals. Uh, We write about Jung and Einstein and also others, uh, uh, Emerson and Mary Parker Follett, who was a management consultant in the early 1900s, and uh, Chardin, a Jesuit priest and paleontologist, because we think these practices that we're talking about are embedded in a larger worldview, a worldview that is able to see, perceive collectively and not just individually. And so we give examples of exemplars whose fields of discipline was really informed by their capacity to think and see collectively. And so I start with the story of Jung and Einstein's meals together because Jung intuitively understood that the explorations of the invisible aspects of the atom had some commonality with his exploration of the psyche. That it was the invisible domain when it meets the visible domain that gives us an experience of the sacred, that opens our eyes to a larger worldview. Also, I'm just recalling as you're speaking that Jung um, wrote the uh, introduction to the Tao Te Ching, or Mm. sorry, the I Ching, the I Ching. And in that introduction, he goes at great length to talk about the, and essentially sees the I Ching as as uh, a, a system of yes. of learning, and 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 in the process, he talks about visiting the the Taoist pueblo, uh-huh. and and uh, how he was so uh, struck by the fact that here was uh, a large uh, group of people that had been up there for millennia, really. And they all, everyone knew it was a village and everyone knew what their their role was. Everyone understood uh, what their role was. And, and it was just interesting. Yeah, I think this is where Jung had his eyes opened. Uh, in, in reading about the I Ching, he began to understand it in relation to his own explorations of alchemy. In visiting the Pueblo, he began to see a community that operated in a more direct way with this transcendent element that we talk about as one of the stances. And uh, you see this in some of our greatest poets and thinkers. Emerson, early 1800s to mid-1800s, his eyes are opened by beginning to read the Upanishads, the Indian texts of our interconnectedness. He begins a group, the Transcendentalist Club, of which Thoreau is a member, and he gives Thoreau some land to build a cabin. Thoreau writes uh, about civil disobedience. A generation later or so, Gandhi, as an African lawyer in South Africa, reads Thoreau's worlds, recognizes the larger field that this work is coming out of, 
and sees it as part of a collective action that we call nonviolence. Howard Thurman, an African-American theologian, visits Gandhi in 1935, invites Gandhi to come to the United States, and Gandhi tells him that he can't do that, but he believes that the ideas of nonviolence will most likely come through the African-American experience. Howard Thurman is like a second father to Martin Luther King. In 1942, Thurman is invited to San Francisco by a white minister, and together they found the first integrated interfaith church in 1942, in the midst of World War II. In 49, Thurman writes, Jesus and the Disinherited, which becomes sort of like a, a fundamental text for Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. So we see how this social field is enacted whenever an individual comes to life. Now, in fact, Thurman's uh, great quote is, he says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I think, you know, I think the Glide Memorial, Cecil Williams, is an outgrowth of that. Yes, yes. That whole process Certainly well. in the spirit of that, that we are interconnected. Yes. And that we are not just giving to others less fortunate. We are reciprocally uh, furthered in our own life, in our own journey, in the meaning of our own purpose when we are connected to others. And King mentions that he was in spirit inspired by Gandhi. And uh, anyways, just the whole thing is, it obviously shows the whole interconnectedness of everyone and everything. That's right. And that's really what the power of collective wisdom is being brought forward as. It's a way of affirming those of us who have been working with these ideas and helping give it a language and help it giving it a larger worldview that we can each deepen in our own work and our own practices. And to trust in the transcendent. To trust in the transcendent. But it comes from that work of deepening the field with each other. Yes. It also comes from, from being aware and awake. And, and one of the ways that can happen is through the practice of mindfulness, which you write about in the book. Yes. Uh, you know, the mindfulness is a way of ending the book to say that this is never going to be contained on a piece of paper or on a list. It's contained inside each of us. Uh, learning is social, so it, it, it involves how we reinforce it in each other to be mindful of each other. Each of us will slip up, but if we develop the relationships in which we can remind each other of what it means to work in this way, then we hold the social bond together. One last comment, which is about Chardin's work, and uh, he was a Jesuit and paleontologist. He develops this idea of the newosphere, which has the same noetic origins as Edgar Mitchell's starting of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And he says that like the biosphere, the newosphere is that envelope of thought that holds us together. And I mentioned this uh, before we started the interview, Michael, that you've been holding conversations for 30 years uh, trying to steward this envelope of thought that that allows us to think in terms of a greater consciousness and expanded awareness of ourselves in relationship to each other and to the cosmos. Thank you for saying that, and thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you. I've been speaking with Alan Briskin. He's the co-author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and The Trap of Collective Folly. His co-authors include Cheryl Erickson, John Ott, and Tom Callanian. And there's a forward in the book by Peter Senge. The book is published by Barrett Kohler. It's available in paperback. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, 
That's thepowerofcollectivewisdom.com or the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3342. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.